Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. I'm going to start a little mini-series which I envision as being three weeks. I don't think it'll go longer than that, but I always reserve the right to make series much longer than I originally thought. And so we're going to do this series, but I think it's just going to be a short one. It's not going to be a long one. So I'm calling this series Good Anger, Bad Anger in this first sermon, Good Anger, Bad Anger. And the reason is because anger is an emotion that we all feel, okay? Some of you have felt it today, okay? Some of you may have felt it just before you came to church or on your way to church. Anger is a common emotion. It's one we all feel. Some of us, and I think this is true around the world, but particularly I can only speak for this area, some of us might have been raised, I don't doubt that there are some of us here today who were raised this way, because I've heard many stories in this community of people who were raised to believe that the feeling of anger is itself a sin, okay? Many people are raised with this idea, particularly Christians, that feeling anger is a sin. And so lots of Christians kind of have this idea that you've got to suppress anger. You've got to try to not feel anger and that, those sorts of things. Other, uh, others of us have been taught wise passages of Scripture out of context as if they were black and white rules that apply in 100% of all situations. For example, here is one of the most famous verses on anger, and most of us have heard or seen or been taught this passage at some point. Do not, this is from Ephesians 4 verse 26, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, okay? And this is a powerful, this is a wonderful verse. It's part of God's word. But many Christians are taught this as if this is black and white law, you never let the sun go down while you're still anger, angry. The question is like, okay, so if a loved one just got murdered, let's say, uh, does this verse mean that in every situation, like by the time that by, you have 24 hours, and then after that, the anger's got to be gone. Does this mean that someone who's gone through years and years of abuse has 24 hours, like now the abuse has ended, you have 24 hours, get over your anger. And many Christians have been taught things that, even if it wasn't stated that explicitly, they're taught those sorts of things. And so in this series, I want to unpack some of that. We're going to come back to this verse, actually, in just a moment again, but we're going to come back to it in a later uh, sermon, okay? Because the fact of the matter is that anger is sometimes good. It is sometimes good. Jesus sometimes got angry, right, in the Gospels, and we know Jesus was without sin. If Jesus got angry, that means there are times when it's okay to be angry, okay? And there are other times in history, which I'll also touch on in this sermon, where anger was a very good thing. It was a force for good. On the flip side, anger is also something that has been a source of much evil in this world, abuse and murder and violence and bullying, etc. So how do we know the difference between good anger and bad anger? How do we deal with bad anger and how do we channel good anger? Well, I want to start this series off with a couple of basic truths, okay? And the first truth is, before we jump in, and I got a Bible story we're going to jump into and, and really unpack here today. But first thing, truth, foundational truth we got to understand for good anger, bad anger is this. Anger is an emotion, not a sin. And I put in a piece of the verse that I left out before because many of us remember the verse without the first part. 
Many of us have been taught or have memorized or remember the verse as do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, but there's actually a line that comes before that part of the verse. And it says this, in your anger, do not sin. Okay? And this is a really important part of the verse to keep in there because the assumption here is that you will feel angry at times. Therefore, the feeling of angry, anger is not a sin. In your anger, the feeling of anger is not a sin. What you do with your anger is where things can be sinful or not sinful. Okay? But being angry is not a sin. Okay? It's a feeling. Essentially, if we were to boil it down into its physiological components, anger is some chemicals and hormones in your brain. Literally, you can break it down to that level Every feeling you have, whether it be sadness or happiness or despair or anger, there are certain chemical, you know, reactions and combinations with hormones that when they get released in your brain, you feel something. It's not magic. It's all tied together, okay? So anger itself is just a feeling that you get when certain chemicals and, and uh, hormones are released in your body, which means ultimately that God has wired you. The fact that there are chemicals and hormones in your brain that when they're released make you feel certain things means ultimately that God wired your body to feel those things. So your body is wired to feel anger sometimes, okay? Shouldn't be. Hopefully it's not all the time. Now we're, then, we're, then we have a problem, okay? But your body is wired to feel anger. That means God wired anger into us for a purpose. There's a reason for anger. Now, of course, we know this world is broken. Our bodies are broken. Our minds are, you know, broken. So that means we oftentimes feel anger when we shouldn't. We often feel anger in, in ways that we shouldn't and act out in anger in ways that we shouldn't. But ultimately, anger is something that God wired into you for a purpose. Now, there are many purposes, you know, probably um, for why God has wired anger into our bodies. But let me just go through two, okay? Two, two reasons why God has wired anger into our bodies. One reason is anger motivates us to take action in order to protect others. So for example, and isn't this a good thing? For example, if you're walking down the street and you see a child being attacked, for example, by you know, an older teenager or someone, right? Just some bad situation. When you see someone smaller, someone innocent, or one of your own children or someone you love being attacked by someone. Now, generally as people, we have all kinds of things that thankfully, that hinder us from just lashing out at someone and tackling them on the street or punching them. Most of us have that. We have all kinds of things that keep us from doing crazy stuff like that. But if you see someone, like we'd be embarrassed and it's not the right thing to do, but if you would see someone attacking your kid or another kid on the street, what emotion is going to rise up in you? Something like anger. And when you feel that, hopefully you will anyway, in a healthy, in a healthy person you're going to feel that, you're going to feel that, and it's going to overcome all, all those other inhibitions that normally keep you from tackling strangers on the street, and you're going to run, you're going to tackle someone, you're going to call 911, you're going to do whatever, but you're going to do something to try to stop the situation. What motivates you to do something crazy like that, suddenly like that, and it's anger. It's wired into you so that in moments like that where you shouldn't be thinking too much, now this is also the downside of anger, is also the weakness of anger, 
But the point is, there are times when anger motivates you instead of overthinking something. In the moment, I have to stop this now. There's something bad, dangerous happening right now. So that's a strength. That's why anger's there. It's also a weakness of anger. It makes you rush into things and do things without thinking that you shouldn't do. There's a second uh, reason why God has wired us with anger. So there's this, you know, in situations where someone you love or someone is being hurt, uh, in other situations, anger alerts us to the presence of injustice, then motivates us to not leave things the way they are. If, you, if we go back through history, you know, the abolition of slavery in, you know, in Western civilization, even before the United States, but even in Britain, things like that, what was the emotion that instigated people to fight against something that was so institutionalized? I'll tell you what it was. It was anger. Anger looks at something and says, this is unjust, and then it motivates you to not just see other emotions. If we didn't have anger, you might just go, oh, that's really too bad. There's injustice there. You just keep living. But anger says, I can't just keep living. Something has to change. That's one of the reasons God has wired us with anger. Things like residential schools, and anger rises up and we say, we can't do this anymore right? Even things on, on other levels like drunk driving laws and all kinds of things like that come from anger. A number of people feel anger. This kind of thing has to stop. We have to do something. We can't leave it as it is. Anger is wired into us for that to happen. Now again, anger often, we fight for the wrong things in the wrong ways, but you can see why God has wired it into us, okay? So ultimately, we can say this, right? Anger is an important emotion that we need. We just need to channel it appropriately, okay? Anger is an important emotion that we need. We just need to channel it appropriately. So now I want to jump into a story in Scripture, 1 Samuel 25, and I want to just dive deep into it. It's a famous story. It's a story of, of King David and a man named Nabal and Nabal's beautiful wife, Abigail, Okay? And we're going to see in this story anger at work. Anger in bad ways and how to diffuse anger. How to stir up anger and how to diffuse it. So 1 Samuel 25. Let's jump into this. Verse 2. A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. His name was Nabal, which means fool. And his wife's name was Abigail. So, you know, kind of unfortunate, right? But um, she was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surely and mean in his dealings. Now, I wonder if there are any couples like that here today, okay? Your wife is beautiful and intelligent, and you are something much less than that. All right. We'll not dwell there too long. Well, David was in the world. And imagine being remembered that, that way, you know, for all of history, millennia. Wow, really great. Anyway, while David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent 10 young men and said to them, go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, long life to you, good health to you and your household. Now, anytime someone starts a statement like that to greet you, you know they're about to ask for something. Is that not true? When your kids come to you and say, long life to you, good health to you and your household, right? So what do you want? Okay? Let's cut to the chase. Verse 7. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. In the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Now, 
first of all, we just have to stop here and think about this request. This, to us in the West particularly, does not seem like David really has a claim here to anything, does it? Like, basically, he's saying, you know, while, you were, while your guys were around my guys, my guys didn't beat you up. While your guys were around my guys, nobody, you know, none of your stuff went missing. Woohoo! okay. This sounds like uh, extortion city. This is like mafia protection uh, money or something. Anyway, verse 8. Therefore, here comes the request, be favorable toward my men since we come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So there's, there's the ask. We've come at a, uh, you know, during a feast, uh, one of the, the Israelite feast days, and, and could you give some food to all of my men, okay? And, uh, of course, now I want to go back here, and I made a little joke about this. So we in the West, first of all, often we don't pay attention to our Bibles, so we just, because we read our Bibles very black and white, and there's good guys and bad guys. So we read this story, David is the good guy, Nabal is the bad guy, therefore everything David does is good. Now, for those Christians who stop and go a little deeper, they might question themselves, this does feel a little bit like mafia protection. Like, David has no claim on any food here. So what? Did Nabal ask you to protect his guys? Okay? Now, and I've heard preachers preach on that and do that kind of thing. We do have to stop here for a moment, though, and go one level deeper and just remind ourselves. When stuff like this happens in Scripture, we have to remember this is a very ancient culture, okay? And there are probably things going on here that we don't know. In this case, we don't for sure know. But it is likely that the way David is making this request, that this is probably something that was relatively common in ancient times. There might have been, there's evidence that this might have been, like there's the whole thing about the feast day here. Uh, we've come at a festive time in, in the Hebrew there. That's, that's a, it's one of the Israelite feast days. There's evidence that it might have been, there might have been customs there where wealthy people were expected to feed or be generous with um, you know, whatever people who are needy in their area. So it does kind of look bad for David here, but in this case, I think we should give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. There's probably something cultural going on, and this request probably isn't totally crazy, okay? But anyway, we keep going, okay? So now Nabal's going to answer David, all right? So here we go. Nabal, Nabal answered David's servants, who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Oh boy, this is not a good start particularly to a man with hundreds of arms, armed men at his command. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? So Nabal responds to the request. Now, again, David's request, you know, it doesn't look like he has a huge reason for making this request, but he's making the request anyway. Might be common in the time, might have some kind of traditions going on there. Whatever the case, Nabal could say no in a nice way. He doesn't say no in a nice way. He comes back very harsh. Now, my question to you is, how do you feel when people respond back to you harshly? Some of you, your personalities, if someone says something harsh to you, you're up for days. Isn't that true? I won't ask for a show of hands, some of you. If someone says something harsh to you, that just knocks you out for a week. You can't stop thinking about it. Others of you, it's like, meh, because you're harsh, okay? And you do it to other people all the time. Um, so Nabal gives him a harsh response. Now, for none of us, harsh responses don't stir up good feelings, okay? And so this is going to stir up some feelings for David. 
David, so David responds in a very godly way. He says to his men, each of you strap on your sword. Each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. By the way, I just want to notice this for just a second. Stayed with the supplies. So they weren't starving, okay? He made a request to Nabal, but just remember, so whatever, there's probably something cultural going on there. It's, it's, I, I, it's not a bad request, but also don't, let's not over-exaggerate. 200 men stayed with the supplies. So there's a lot of supplies, okay? So he's not starving. But David said to his men, each of you, okay, so we all know, okay, a harsh answer is going to make you feel bad. It's going to make you feel angry. There's no question. David doesn't just go to a little bit of anger, though. He goes straight to murder. In fact, he makes it even more specific. He makes an oath before God. May God deal with David. He talks about himself in the third person, which is a bit weird, but anyway. Be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Wow! Okay? Like Nabal didn't give a good answer. This is not a good response. By the way, in the Hebrew, uh, it, it's, it's always so, in, our English translations always clean things up. There's actually essentially a swear word in here, a Hebrew swear word, and I'm not encouraging swear word, but essentially it's using the vile word for pee. It does not say male in the Hebrew. It says, if I leave alive one of those who pees against the wall. That's literally what this phrase says. So anybody who stands up and pees is dead. Okay? That's what it says in the Hebrew. Now we just say, if I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Okay, great. It's probably better that we just do it that way. Our sensibilities won't be offended. Okay? So, but David goes straight to murder. He, want, he goes straight to mass murder. Now, the reason I want to just stop here, and we need to stop here, is because of this rut we fall into as Christians, which is we have good guy, black and, bad guy, black and white syndrome when we read the Bible. So David's in this story, and so he's the good guy, so everything he does is good. So first of all, since he's the good guy and Nabal's the bad guy, we justify, ah, okay, David's overreacting a bit. This is not overreacting a bit, this is mass murder. He is talking, he is planning to, he, is, he, he wants to and will in this story, although he's going to get stopped by the hand of God through a wise woman. Thank God for wise women, amen? He is going to get stopped from it, but he would. If he wasn't stopped, he would go and he would kill, not just over a harsh answer, he would kill Nabal, Nabal's brothers, uncles, servants, sons, nephews, everyone is going to die this guy is as bad as any hell's angel biker, or you just imagine the worst kind of people. David is not a good guy in this story. He is David, and he is, this is outright evil. Do not give David a free pass, or any good guy in the Bible a free pass for doing horrible things. And by the way, it doesn't matter how mean Nabal was. How mean would Nabal have to be for David to be justified to kill everybody who pees on the wall. There's no excuse for this. This is a foolish man. By the way, if you want to rank the wickedness in this story, it's not Nabal than David, okay? Nabal is foolish. He gives a harsh answer. He is a wicked man, there's no question. Mass murder, David is the worst in this story. Just because he's King David does not give him a free pass. 
And the reason I'm making a big deal of this is when we Christians, by the way, just, this, is just, this is just a side point, a little rabbit trail point to this message, but it's something I like to bring up regularly, particularly in the Old Testament. When we Christians, 3,000 years later, justify things like this, oh, David just went a little bit overboard. Sometimes, you know, God's people need to be this kind of harsh. When we justify this kind of violence, because David was one of the good guys, it very quickly seeps into our moral compass and we find ourselves justifying all kinds of crazy stuff by people in the church in the name of Jesus too. This is completely unacceptable, wicked, and evil. This is not God's will. This is not God's heart. If this, these actions and heart are anything, they are in the camp of Satan, not in the camp of God. So when we're clear about that, then we can just move on. Okay, fortunately, a wise woman is going to come to the rescue here and prevent an explosion of bloodshed. Now, one of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife. And Ab Abigail acted quickly, thank God. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, and a bunch of other stuff. Then she told her servants, go on ahead and I'll follow you. Okay? So she acts quickly. She's working to diffuse David's anger. By the way, I want you to notice, I just want to ask you something here right now. Does David deserve 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, and five dressed sheep? No. But guess what? This wise woman, he's about to do something really, really bad. She's working to diffuse the anger. She's not giving him this because he deserves it. She's not giving him this because, oh, you know, like, Nabal should have said yes. Well, maybe actually Nabal probably should have said yes. But actually, if it's Nabal's stuff, ultimately, and David's not starving, really Nabal, David does not have a claim. She's not doing this because she has to. She's doing something really wise, though, to diffuse David's anger. Go on ahead, I'll follow you. And then when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak. Now, I want to just say a couple of things. I want, to draw a I want to draw two practical things out of these passages right here about diffusing anger. Okay? But before we do that, I want to just stop and I want to remind you of something. Because one of the things we do here at Crossview and everything we're doing is we're also trying to teach us all how to wisely, remember two weeks ago I talked about wise handling of scripture. How do we wisely understand what the Bible is so that we don't misuse it, okay? So here's the first thing I want to tell you. We pastors love giving two point, three point, five point sermons where we take a story like this and we show you da 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 here's how to cure your anger or here's how to diffuse anger. So let me just, before I do that, before I give you the two-point formula for diffusing anger, let me first tell you that it's not a formula. And let me second of all tell you this. Do you think the writer of 1 Samuel, when he's writing this story down, is thinking about Chris Dirksen, 3,000 years in the future, and other modern Canadian and American and Western preachers, and thinking to himself, I've got to give them content for three and five point ser practical sermons on how to diffuse anger, how to have a better marriage, or any of those things. Let me tell you, that is not what the writer of Samuel is thinking. Now, we are justified in Christians, and we have a lengthy 2,000 year history of going to these stories, and they're rich, and we look at them in their context, 
and then we want to wrestle with them and see if there's things we can pull out for our lives that is perfectly acceptable. But as we do that, we should remember that the writer of Samuel is not thinking, I want to give everybody a two-point, three-point, four-point sermon on how to diffuse anger. Diffusing anger is not the purpose of this story. What's the purpose of the book of Samuel? It's to, it is an apologetic to Israelites that David is the rightful king. This is for Israelites, you know, 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. It's an apologetic that says, your king, David, here's the story of how he became king, and he's the rightful king, and he's the king God called. And all of these stories are part of showing that. So the writer of Samuel, when Abigail falls at his feet and bows to David, he's not thinking about diffusing anger. He's thinking, this is the right thing to do. It's a prophetic act because David is going to become king, okay? Does that make sense? Now, David isn't alive anymore. And so that part, you know, so we wrestle with that and we look and we go, so we learn from the context and we learn, okay, Jesus comes from David. David, you know, Jesus is the rightful Messiah. Awesome. Now, we're also allowed, because Paul did this too, to pull some practical applications out of it, that the original writer wasn't primarily thinking about. So let me pull two things out, okay? Okay, let me pull two things out. First, a humble posture is brilliant for dis- diffusing anger. A humble posture is brilliant for diffusing anger. At, so David is in such a rage, he's about to kill a bunch of people. Abigail comes to him. Imagine if she comes to him like this. Imagine Abigail comes to David and says, You idiot! You're about to kill everybody, all my boys, my nephews, my servants. Everybody who, you know, should be going somewhere else, but they're going against the wall. Well, hey, you're going to kill them all. You idiot. That is a sin. It's wrong. It's bad. Let me first of all ask you, would she be telling the 100% truth in everything she just said? Yes or no? 100%. If she told him you are an evil man, you want to kill everybody over a harsh answer, she would be 100% in the right. But would it diffuse David's anger? No. Here's the thing about anger. Have you ever noticed when you get angry, what do you do? You, depending on how angry you get. But if you get to the point where you yell, and I know nobody here yells, ever. At your spouse, at your kids, at people at work, none of you ever do that. That's so great. That's why you come to Crossview. Okay? Awesome. This is for all of your friends back home and your family and people who go to other churches, right? Okay, good. So now we've settled that. But now as we listen for them, right? What happens when the people you know get angry, so angry that they want to yell? Do you sit down? Like, is this what you do when you get angry? I'm so angry. That's not what you do. You don't sit down. You stand up. When's the last time you sat in your easy chair, leaned back? When's the last time you sat in your lazy boy, kicked it up, laid back, and then screamed you were so mad at your kids? That's not what you do when you're angry. Why is that? When you get angry... You stand up. When you want to yell, you stand up. Why do you stand up? Because it's all wired. Do you know everything is wired the way God has designed us? It's all wired together. Your body, your mind, your heart, everything. It's all wired together. You stand up because the, the emotion of anger makes you want to act. It makes you want to be bigger. It makes you want to dominate and control. So you stand up to yell. That's why you do it. You stand up. Now the thing is, 
David's already mad. He's coming with his sword. He wants to kill a bunch of people. If Abigail comes to him and meets anger with anger, you know what's going to happen? So what happens when you're angry? What happens when someone else, when you're already upset, someone comes to you and stands up and gets mad at you? What do you, what do you automatically feel? You can't even help it. It doesn't matter how good a Christian you are. Unless you've had a frontal lobotomy. Someone comes at you and they're mad and they're standing there yelling. Now, you, you might be able to control yourself, but you're going to feel a response. You're going to feel, you, you want to push back. If Abigail comes in with power and she tries to fight anger with anger, you know what that does? That just throws more gasoline on the fire. And now you both escalate. More, 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 more. I got to overpower you. I got to overpower you. You know what's the best thing for diffusing anger? It has nothing to do with whether David deserves it or not. He doesn't. He deserves nothing in this story. Best thing to do with anger, someone stands up to dominate, control, is to sit down and listen. It is very hard. Try it at home with your spouse or one of your kids. Try screaming at someone who just sits there quietly and listens to you. It's like really hard. In fact, you try sitting down. Imagine if you and your coworker were always yelling at each other, Instead of standing up and yelling at each other, if you both sat down and tried to listen first. You know what it does? Diffuses your own anger, diffuses the other person's anger. Now, the writer of Samuel is not thinking this through that way. But we can take these things, we can understand these things from she comes and she bows down. Very hard to be angry and kill a bunch of people when they come and they say, oh my Lord. Right? So she comes with a humble posture. By the way, I'm just giving you, speaking of raising money for the building, those of you who are parents, I just gave you a brilliant parenting trick, by the way. My daughter and I learned this years ago, and I, I hate when, my, when our kids listen to my sermons because they know all the ways that I fail to apply the parenting courses that we learn from. But we do try, and we get it sometimes, for sure. But I remember when our kids were younger, uh, often when your kids, so if you have young kids, uh, you know, five, six, seven, under, right? There are times when they're going to have meltdowns. That is just inevitable, okay? So when your kid has a meltdown, now what do we generally tend to do? We get upset because it's loud, it's grating, we want it to stop. Stop! Stop yelling, stop whining, shut up! So we stand up. We stand up, and then by anger, we want to force down. You know, it's one of the most brilliant things. It doesn't just work for wicked King David. A humble posture is brilliant for diffusing anger. It is amazing. I would sometimes do this with our kids when they're little. Is sometimes you've got to take them off into a, another room or something, right? If they're in public or whatever, things are going crazy and they're melting down. You just take them off to the side and you just sit down, put your back against the wall in their room. And then you just sit there while they freak out. It is very hard for them to freak out when dad's sitting there listening to me. Why? It's diffusing the power struggle. Now, does that mean it's okay for them to behave in bad ways? No. But if you can diffuse the anger first, you might actually get somewhere to changing the behavior. Next thing you know, now, is this a formula that works in all cases? No. Some kids have, there's various issues and things that can happen that might not fix everything. Might not work with your kid. You could try it. Next thing you know, they're on your lap. And now, when they're calmed down, you can have a conversation with them and say, okay, now let's talk about your behavior and what's bothering you. Now, this brings us, me to something else, though. 
Stupid TV. No. Oh. See, I'm just showing you. Look how diffused that I feel great. The TV feels great. Here's the second thing. So humble posture. You come in low. You don't come in with power. Number two, listen for the angry person's felt needs and empathize with them, whether they deserve it or not, if you want to diffuse anger. So notice, first of all, before we even talk about this Nabal, notice David's request was food. Now, we later saw he's got 200 men guarding the supply, so he's not starving. It's not a bad request, but it's not a starvation request. Okay? So what does Abigail, first thing she does, she, does, she acts quickly. He asks for food, she sends food. Okay? She, it's not that David deserves it, but she has listened for his felt need. She's empathized with him. Also, he's upset because her husband gave a stupid, foolish answer. She empathizes with him there too. Maybe a little too far, like <laughs> if I'm Nabal and my wife is telling him, yeah, he's so... But I guess she's saving his life too, or trying to. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man Nabal. And she goes on to say his name is exactly what it means, which is fool. Okay? What is she doing here? Now again, this is not about you now have an excuse to go throw your spouse under the bus, okay? Because you want to empathize with someone else. Remember, David is about to kill a bunch of people. This is an extreme situation. But at the same time, I want you to notice, David has felt needs. She empathizes with them. I'm telling you, when you go into a situation, whether it's with your child, or whether it's at work, or whether it's your spouse, and you go in with a humble posture, you sit down. You don't try to take control. And then the first thing you do, whether they deserve it or not, that can come once you diffuse the anger. Then you can come and talk about, you know, some of this is not okay. But you listen. What is it that's bothering you? What is it that's bothering my kid? What is it that's bothering my spouse? If you can listen and you can connect at that level, that is incredible for diffusing anger. Absolutely incredible. Now, you say, are you saying that I need to give in to the demands, every demand of an angry person? And no, that's, that's not uh, it either. You know, there are many cases where the demands of an angry person might be unreasonable. But as far as you can, to at least empathize. I hear you. Ah, oh, this is what's upsetting you. Okay, I hear that. Maybe you can't do anything about it, but I hear that. Makes sense to me. Abigail here, Nabal is wicked, David is wicked. Abigail is in the middle making peace between two wicked men in this conversation. And this really reminds me, and now we can begin to conclude this sermon. Brings us back to the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Matthew 5, you know what Abigail exhibited to us there? Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called, what? Children of God. We Christians are very fond of using that title, right? I'm a child of God. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. Awesome. I love that. We should do that. That's one of the main, you know, pictures, metaphors in the Bible for God's people is we're his children. But did you ever realize that your title, child of God, comes with a job description and it's called peacemaker? Peacemaker. This is right near the top. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Our fractured society desperately needs this. 
as Christians in the workplace and on social media and in the public square and in families? Are we people that inflame anger, that make anger worse, that pour gasoline on fires? Or are we Abigail's people? Abigail, there was no right side in Nabal David. She was between two wicked parties and still she worked for peace. Your title as a child of God comes with a job description, peacemaker. Do we bring peace to hot family discussions, to hot political conversations? Do we bring peace or do we bring more anger? Now, by the way, you might say, well, does that mean we can't stand for truth? Actually, yes, we should stand for truth. But did you know true truth, hear that? True truth comes cloaked in peace. Let me show you this. True truth. There's truth that isn't true. It's not of Jesus. Satan says true things. You can use true things to tear up families. You can use true things to tear up nations. You can use true things to tear up a person. Satan does it all the time. But if you want true truth that comes from Jesus, true truth comes in a cloak of peace. Look at this in James. And we're going to spend some time in James in this series. Starting next week. But verse 17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven. So here's the wisdom. Here's the true truth. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then what? Peace loving. What's true truth look like? You might have a truth. Abigail could have told David some truth. You are an evil, wicked man. That would have been truth. That's not what she did. True truth is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive. Wow, we could just meditate on this passage for a while and wouldn't Christians be a different group of people? True truth, true wisdom. You might know all kinds of things and you might even be right and still be wrong. You might have truth, but it might not be true truth. Peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy. And by the way, I'm going to talk to you in this series about the background for the book of James. And it is, I find, wildly fascinating and lots of intersections with us today. The things that these Christians were going through and the things they wanted to fight back against and into that milieu, James is telling them true truth. Good fruits, impartial and sincere, verse 18. Peacemakers, now listen to this, it's great. Peacemakers, the Abigails of this world who sow in what? Peace. They're not just sowing truth. They're sowing truth in peace Reap a harvest of righteousness. I think too often Christians, we want to hammer down on truth because we think with truth comes righteousness. No, no, no. There's a certain kind of truth that ends up in righteousness. True truth, it's cloaked in peace. Truth that comes cloaked in anger and violence and all that sort of stuff does not end up in a harvest of righteousness. It ends up with a harvest of wickedness. There's a different kind of truth. Jesus isn't just calling us to truth. He's calling us to God's truth. Peacemakers who stand for truth cloaked in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. We are the diffusers of anger and violence. We are the reasonable people in our families. 
We are the reasonable people in our workplaces. We are the people who are peace-loving and considerate and submissive and full of mercy. We are the peacemakers, the children of God, who sow in peace to reap a harvest of righteousness. Every generation of human beings has needed children of God like this, and none more so than our generation today. So are you willing to sign up with me in this series on good anger, bad anger? There are reasons sometimes to be angry, but even when we have a reason to be angry, we need to be peacemakers. I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to close your eyes. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks in this, and we've got some great passages of Scripture to cover. I'm so looking forward to digging into James. But I want you to ask yourself right now, just quietly, just a little time of reflection. You might have areas in your life where you have truth, but you've been using it to lord it over people or to stir up anger or to abuse people around you. The question is not, do you have the right facts? The question is, do you have the right heart? Lord Jesus, we want to be peacemakers, children of God. We want to be people with true truth, not just truth. For all of us who are here physically together today, Lord, we are so thankful for this opportunity and for all those who are following online. Lord, by your Spirit, begin to transform us into peacemakers. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.